This is Short Stories, 200 Years of the Royal Academy of Music, presented by Anna Picard. In this episode, all the music you hear is performed by students of the Royal Academy of Music. Episode 2, Revolution. In 1972, the composer Luciano Berio made a television documentary. His subject was the ideal modern music school. The film opened at the Royal Academy of Music with a rehearsal of Paul Patterson's piece, Rebecca. OK, Rebecca. The score of Patterson's Rebecca was printed across the centrefold of the midsummer 1966 edition of the Royal Academy magazine. It's a graphic score, a line snaking across and around the page with symbols to indicate the brushing of piano strings, the use of fists and forearms on the keyboard, a glass tumbler and ping-pong balls. Londra, Royal Academy of Music. Gli allievi di composizione stanno provando un nuovo pezzo dal titolo Rebecca è la storia di una bambina cattiva e sinistra. Dirige l'autore. A trick that everyone appalls in little girls is. Berio's film ends with footage of the English composer Cornelius Cardew and members of the Scratch Orchestra, creating shapes on the ground of Trafalgar Square with seeds to marshal a flock of pigeons. The musicians themselves imitate the pigeons, crouching down, thrusting their heads forward and pecking to the bemusement of a crowd of onlookers. Cardew trained at the Royal Academy of Music and began teaching there in 1967. Published twice a year, the Royal Academy magazine offers a remarkable insight to the musical obsessions of the staff and students in the 1960s and early 1970s. There are news articles, reviews, obituaries, concert listings, articles and some feisty flag-waving for new music. But while the late 1960s was a time of student revolutions in Paris, Mexico, Spain, the United States and across the world, there's very little evidence of agitation in the Academy. I'm Hugh Shrapnel, composer and oboist. I was at the Royal Academy of Music from 1966 to 69. At the Royal Academy of Music, I would say that the world events and politics, it didn't play much of a role in the student life at the Academy. I mean, we were aware of events like the 1968 Paris, but it didn't really... I don't remember any debate amongst us, the students, about, about it particularly, so it didn't really impinge on us. It was all music. I think sort of like the wider political world definitely does affect what happens in RAM. Melissa Doody is a third-year viola student at the Royal Academy of Music and is the Student Union Equality and Diversity representative. As a student body, we want to move with society and as it develops and sort of go along with that so that we don't get stuck behind. And I think that's really important as well that we do. 
but even she recognises that studying music can sometimes put the brakes on activism. You're so focused on this rehearsal, this practice. You need to prepare for this concert in the evening. Like, it's such a 24-7 almost profession to have that it can get quite difficult to pick up on, you know, the news around you and society in general. You do just get lost in the music. You put in so much time and dedication for it that you do just forget about things. Sometimes I forget about checking the weather in the morning or something, or like what I'm doing the next day. <laughs> the lutenist Elizabeth Kenny was a student at the Academy from 1988. Now she is a professor and also Dean of Students. How political are the students today? Much more so than I remember conservatoire students. I remember coming in from a university undergraduate which was very politicised and lots of debates and animated discussion and finding the conservatoire environment was much more focused on music. Obviously it is still focused on music but there's much more a sense of where music fits in to that and of course we're talking in the middle of a war situation. We have Russian students, we have students from Ukraine so it's viscerally political, but we have to figure out whether music is part of that, separate from that. Sometimes it's an escape from that for our students. It could be the solace that helps them get through terribly difficult circumstances for their families. Or it could be that they see their music as a source of national pride at the moment. We're definitely experiencing that with, with our Ukrainian students from Elizabeth Kenny's perspective, political engagement at the Royal Academy does not fit the university stereotype of a uniformly left-wing student population. It's a real melting pot, I'd say. The challenges of Brexit have united everybody in thinking that that's a really bad idea for musicians and music and for our very European tradition. We were founded by Europeans... Much of my early first 20 years of working was at least 50% in France, Germany, Spain, Holland, Belgium, you name it. And I share a great sadness that that won't be easily available to our British students The cellist and conductor Sir John Barbaroli was a student at the Royal Academy in 1916. He recalled how he and his friends played Ravel's string quartet in the lavatories. Not for acoustical reasons, but to avoid the censure of the principal, Alexander Mackenzie, who had banned Ravel as a pernicious modern influence. In the past, there was often tension between the new and the established traditions at the Academy. The current principal is Jonathan Freeman Atwood. 
I can honestly say that there's nothing that's off limits musically in the Royal Academy of Music in 2022. And that is a wonderful thing to celebrate. It's not always been the case. And it may be right at the beginning, the whole notion of a conservatoire is that somehow you're conserving something and you're preserving traditions jealously and you're guarding the canon and you don't want it to be diluted by music that you don't think is worthy of the, the, the ivory tower. And, you know, we know uh, stories of this. Uh, you know, Barbara Rolly rehearsing Ravel's string quartet in the gents, you know, because the principal of the time thought that it was music was just too louche for for the, the lady students, you know. Somehow they wouldn't be able to take this sort of um, slightly depraved French music. You know, it, it extends into Johnny Dankworth rehearsing jazz bands here and people looking down their noses at it, possibly even to a certain extent in the early days of musical theatre. People from the vocal department didn't really understand that it was a, an emerging culture we were taking very seriously and they were judging it entirely on the terms of operatic vocal production and so on. But there have been some very important points in the Academy's recent history where things have changed, setting up of a jazz department on its own and attracting so many wonderful students that it's now one of the jewels in our crown. Musical theatre has become, of course, a, a world leader of a certain kind. Uh, some of our scholarships sponsored by Disney. That tension between the old and the new was never more in evidence than in the 1960s. Reading the magazines from the time, there is a real sense of beleaguerment amongst those who were championing new music. They positioned themselves as outsiders, trying to win over their peers and their professors. The activities of the new music group, now attracting visitors such as the American composer Morton Feldman, gathered pace. By December 1969, Paul Patterson wrote that interest in modern music is becoming more widespread in the Academy, as the audience attendance for our last concert was much improved. Hugh Shrapnel was there. It seems to have been a tight-knit group, your group. Was there a sense of embattlement within the wider institution? Uh, yes. <laughs> Please, go on, um, explain. We were looked on... I, I was aware that we were looked on with a fairly deep suspicion by the authorities. We're always organising concerts, and we had to book the main hall, and that was a, a bit of a business. Like, a, um, when can we do it? You know, like, extreme reluctance. And then the other thing is that in terms of what you might call the sort of mainstream staff, they didn't come to our concerts. I felt that we were kind of like quite out on a limb, really. And the general feeling of the Academy was that it was very traditional, very conservative. I mean, even like Schoenberg wasn't sort of really accepted. The new music group made their headquarters in the Manson Room. The Manson Room was run by David Lumsdane. I mean, he was such an enthusiast for all the, all the, the European avant-garde. I, I don't think he had much time for Cage and people... Yeah, I mean, the Muslim, it was very well 
stopped and you know he, he'd order the latest Ligeti or whatever so these it was very exciting we'd go there and browse over the scores. Who in general did you admire at that age? Who, who were you listening to? When I was at the academy it was um, Schoenberg, Berg, um, Bayburn, Strunsky, uh but also much more uh, Boulez, Stockhausen Funny enough, not so much the, the Americans, me personally. Well, I was into the European avant-garde at the time, but Cornelius introduced us all to Kate, of course, and Lamont Young and Terry Riley and so on. So minimalism so, was so really it was, new. It was very new. Yes, it was. In fact, I, I did actually take part in the first performance of the Terry Riley in C that the Cornelius organised and directed in 1968. Fantastic. And, and it was very new, of course. Yeah, you're, you're right, it was extremely new, yeah. In the midsummer 1969 edition of the Royal Academy of Music magazine, a top 20 list of the most requested scores and records from the Manson Room was published. At number one was Boulez's Le Marteau Sans Maître, with strong showings for Stockhausen, Schoenberg and Stravinsky, whose right of spring was in at number 15. article concludes with a challenge. Why stick to the egg and chips of the musical world? Why not come and taste the exotic fare on display? It would be wise to appreciate modern music now and to learn to like it in preparation for the year 2001, when Beethoven and Brahms may well be performed as rarely as Stockhausen and Boulez are today. Edward Gardner conducted this performance of the Rite of Spring by the combined student forces of the Royal Academy of Music and the Juilliard School, New York. Despite the prediction for 2001, the only work on this list that is absolutely core repertoire is the Rite of Spring. What makes it so different? It wasn't the most musically radical thing that Stravinsky had written. What he manages to do is to shock us as performers and audiences, but also allow us in with an accessibility that we can process what it is that's shocking us. When you're standing in front of an orchestra for the Rite of Spring, you're pretty overpowered by the the range of colours, actually, not just by the strength of the music. It's a huge orchestra, and you feel like there are waves of energy coming out at you. A lovely thing I did in the past is to have children sitting within the orchestra when you rehearse Rite of Spring, and they are completely overwhelmed. You know, a generation who are used to loud music on headphones, they're overwhelmed by the sheer force and the vibrations of what that piece can bring.
Philip Cashian is Head of Composition at the Royal Academy. I asked him whether students today would pick the same pieces. Well, it's very much European modernism, isn't it? Big 20th-century composers, Stravinsky, Stockhausen, Borges, Ligeti, Henson, Nono, Penderecki, Zanarkis, Weben. So going right back to the beginning of the 20th century. I suppose now things have grown out from this list, haven't they? And become more diverse and more mixed up with, with other types of music and technology and, and things aren't quite as pigeonholed as they used to be. And so students studying composition here now, I mean, I suspect then they were just listening to classical music, but now I think composition students listen to all sorts of music. Electronica, yeah. drill. Yeah, drill. Yeah. Musicals, all, all types of popular music, as, as well as this list of, you know, Stravinsky, Bursa's and Arcus, and, it, and it's all kind of feeding into them as composers, and what comes out is, is far more diverse and less related to the, you know, the classical tradition, which is, which is really good, I think. It's, it's, it's a kind of healthy situation, because this was probably very much a kind of minority sport back in the 1960s, and it was in probably a corner, and this, whereas now contemporary music's out there and mixed up with everything. In these editions of the magazines, there's so much excitement about this Manson room, this legendary Manson room, and in particular about the arrival of a new synthesizer, the Zinoviev SVC-8. Does the Manson room still exist, and what would we find in there? The, there isn't a Manson room. The whole building is the Manson room now. The Manson room then was the room where the new music happened, but now it's, it's just a part of the fabric of the building, as much as baroque music is or opera. I mean, I think we're lucky to have Jonathan as a principal who is completely supportive of new music. It's there in all concerts and, and it's mixed in with everything else. Better than being in the basement. Better than being in the basement, yeah. In the, uh, say, the 80s and 90s, contemporary music was often seen as a kind of bolt-on to the everyday life. So we'd have these splendid week-long festivals with luminaries such as Elliot Carter and Tippett and Berio and Messiaen and Henze. And they would come for a week and everybody would just be totally immersed in this intensive experience with all these great figures. And then one would go back to normal again for the rest of the year. But I think what happened is that as that series continued, people started thinking, I'm taking a bit of ownership of this this landscape now, and I like playing this music, and I can do it, and it's imbuing a different type of approach and confidence, and I will commission composers. And it became drip-fed into the curriculum, so the festivals became no longer necessary to such an extent that I think contemporary music is part of, of one long sort of thread of a festival that exists in the Academy now, and I, I think it has evolved to such an extent where there are not many people in this building who haven't at some stage engaged very seriously with a major contemporary music project. Music is no longer in the basement, but everywhere in the building, filling the staircases and spilling out into Regent's Park. Music for Trees is a geolocation smartphone app featuring compositions by students relating to individual trees in the park. Each tree has its own music, 
and as you move closer, its theme rises in the mix. The whole park becomes a concert. And as part of the 200th anniversary legacy project, the Academy has commissioned a series of 200 new works. Here is one of them, Louise Druitt's Pizzica. later, something of the experimental spirit of the late 60s remains in the Academy today. I'm Alex Hills. I am an academic teacher at the Royal Academy of Music, where I teach lots of music theory. Alex also runs an elective course where students explore experimental music by 20th and 21st century composers. This particular bit of it today is third and fourth year undergraduate performers. It's always taken by performers. I don't think I've ever had a composer take it, actually, but it would be open to composers too. And there are people who are here to learn the flute or learn the cello or whatever and mostly have some prior interest in contemporary music or experimental music, but not always. Some of them it's completely a new thing and they want to just have a go and see what happens. I'm Lydia Walquist. I'm in my third year of undergrad, and I play the flute. This class has been one of my favorite courses at Royal Academy so far because it allows you to be creative without feeling like you're playing wrong. I think the word that instantly comes to mind is freedom. You can create experimental music out of anything, and I think that's beautiful. Published in 1967, Cornelius Cardew's 193-page graphic score, Treaties, contains 67 different symbols to suggest the sounds or musical gestures that performers might make. Some of them are elegant lines or blocks. The one on the page that Alex is looking at today resembles the shape of a Bauhaus factory. What else do we see on the page? Anyone else? So as well as the factory, what else is there? Especially if we look at page 67 as well. There are actual clefts. 
There are some clefts. Tell me what gets attached to the clefts. Lines. Does that help us know what to play? Like Cornelius Cardew is really one of the most exotic figures in English contemporary music, I think. He was born in the early 1930s and came to the academy as a student in composition and played the piano very well and played the cello very well and was apparently the most extraordinary natural musician. Um, he learned the guitar to play the guitar part in Belize's La Marta Son Maitre. One of my teachers was conducting a performance of a Weber piece that they didn't have the saxophone part for, so Kaji went away and wrote it down off the record. The thing that comes out of the factory is a bass clef with five lines and what looks to me like a very old-fashioned grieve from medieval notation of an A. So that could be the end product of the factory, I suppose, couldn't it? Yeah, I saw immediately a Pac-Man. <laughs> After he left the academy, he became Stockhausen's assistant and worked in Cologne with Stockhausen. And Stockhausen really thought he was exceptional. And much of the score for Carey by Stockhausen is actually by Cardew. Then he, he moved away from Stockhausen. And he is someone who every time he sort of did something, he kind of had to denounce it and move on. So after that, he became more and more interested in improvisation and pieces that gave more freedom to the performers, and that culminated in Treaties, this graphic score piece that we're going to look at today. OK, off you go. I think what's difficult is pushing past just the habit of reading music in the classical style, I guess. And what was fun was I got to think of which extended techniques I could use on the flute and how I can use my voice and what the boxes meant. And to me, it was percussive and dry, especially in a factory. Then it was wonderful to collaborate with my colleagues and peers to hear what they're doing and see like the factory sounds they made. And I thought that was so much fun because then it gave me more ideas on machines I could imitate. Since Cardew was very political and didn't really like capitalism, I thought, uh, let's, make a, let's make a defective product out of this factory. And so I played a very airy A. As a flutist, it's really fun to just whiz up to the highest note possible. In 1967, Cardew was appointed Professor of Composition at the Royal Academy of Music by the principal, Thomas Armstrong. Hugh Shrapnel was one of his students. I was aware of, of Cornelius, and I had been to some concerts, including a concert he gave at the, I think it was at the, the American Embassy, and um, he would play a, a X for Henry Flint by Lamont Young, and arm clusters on the piano, and, and I'd never heard or seen anything like it. I just thought I was just completely, absolutely amazed by it, really. And I think it was Susan Bradshaw tried to drag him off the piano. It was very, very, very dramatic. 
And then I heard that he was, um, there was some talk about him coming to the academy to teach composition. And, and I wanted to study with him. Can you describe what the manner of composition classes were like before his arrival? I mean, how much of a culture shock was it? It was a very a great culture shock for, for me personally. In the first year, I studied composition with Norman DeMuth, who was very traditional. I mean, Ravel, for him, was the great modern, you know, and, and I, I loved Ravel's music, so that wasn't the problem. But I was, at the time, I was very involved with Stockhausen, you know, Boulez, Webern, and so on. So I wasn't interested in his, his approach. We didn't get on, really, for that reason. You know, he was very, very small-c conservative in his approach, and I, I wanted to do the latest thing. Cornelius's approach to composition was just so different. I mean, there was no traditional harmony, counterpoint, form, whatever. It was uh, very much based on cage, experimental music, and, and that was what he taught, basically taught. There was this famous incident recounted by Thomas Armstrong that on one occasion, Cardew simply locked the students in the room. He did, yes. You were there? I was there, yes. We had lessons in, you know, on the uh, t- top floor, rather the dusty organ room. Yeah, he, he uh, just locked us in. I mean, it sounds like very frivolous and a sort of uh, a not that funny joke, but I think there was a seriousness for why he did that. I think it was, what are we doing here? You know, like, uh, what are we doing at the academy? But in the end, I remember that one of us called out of the window to, you know, to get somebody with a key. It was quite strange. How long were you in there? About an hour. Do you have any idea how he spent that time? He never said, I've no idea. (laughs) Although, actually, he did have a daytime job. He worked at a a printing office uh, very near the academy. What? um, Yeah, he would um, teach us in his lunch hours. I don't know it was a full-time job, but he was employed by a design uh, office. He was very good at graphics, and, of course, treatise was an outcome of that. So maybe he went back to the office, I don't know. (laughs) Cardew set up the Scratch Orchestra with Howard Skempton and Michael Parsons while teaching at Morley College in 1968. Working collaboratively and collectively, they upended traditional ideas about performance, composition and musical organisation. Visual arts and amateur enthusiasts were at the centre of the enterprise, and even the pigeons of Trafalgar Square became members of the band in Berio's film. Where Cardew's students took refuge in the Manson Room and struggled to find performers for their pieces, versatility and a willingness to explore new music is now key to career development. The modern musician needs to be flexible, collaborative and open-minded. I'm Jessica Walker. I work in artist development at the Royal Academy of Music. Artist development looks at how our students can become fully rounded musicians, uh, musicians who can have long and fulfilling careers, who can develop their artistry and their creativity. And we aim to sort of open their eyes and ears to other career and creative possibilities. The professional landscape has changed immeasurably in the last couple of decades, I would say. In some ways, there are fewer opportunities now, but in terms of being a musician in the world, there are many more opportunities. But I really do think this has always been an issue that, um, that conservatoires traditionally have ignored equipping students with the tools for their trade, and that's not just how to play your instrument or how to sing or how to compose. 
Jessica Walker set up the Student Create Festival to give students opportunities to experiment with performance and new work. The sheer scale and the ambition and the creativity of the students was incredible and there was such an appetite for it. Loads of composers wrote new pieces. We had one undergraduate who staged a full opera with orchestra and sang in it himself. We had mazurkas um, on the piano with dancers. There was another dance piece actually with a a male dancer who wore um, ultraviolet body paint and danced in the dark, but his body was all lit up in the different colours and they were very imaginative and inventive. It's fun to experiment, of course, but there is also a practical purpose to this work. Alex Hills. Being able to engage in practices that take what you do as a musician to places that you wouldn't normally do can reflect backwards on other things you do too and it makes you flexible and broad-minded and able to work with people in different ways so even if you don't end up as a performer making a living playing John Cage which very few people do there's a kind of open-mindedness and an energy in working with others and things that's encouraged by this practice that sees you well in music in general that goes far beyond just being able to play this music in itself. Even for those students who end up as principals in symphony orchestras and opera houses, the discipline of engaging with experimentation is essential. New repertoire is always being added to the old, and from Ravel's string quartet to the Rite of Spring, all core works were once experimental themselves. When you leave, you don't just sit next to someone who does exactly the same as you. Um, you might in an orchestra, but there is also the rest of the orchestra. And certainly as a singer, you know, you very quickly learn that you're going to be collaborating with all different kinds of artists. And they, you know, very rarely actually with people like you. was episode two of Short Stories, 200 Years of the Royal Academy of Music. It was presented by Anna Picard and was produced by Natalie Steed. The full list of music featured 
can be found in the episode description. To hear more episodes, subscribe to the podcast or go to the Royal Academy of Music website.